2: WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for joining us. America is a country of immigrants, and most of us can trace our origins to other countries and other cultures. Here in Atlanta, we see that represented in our art, we taste it in our food, and we hear it in the stories that our newcomers share. Coming up, we'll hear from painter Rocio Rodriguez. The abstract artist is a native of Cuba and a 35-year resident of Atlanta. And later, we'll listen back to our conversation about the book Fresh Off the Boat. It's part of the six-word memoir series, and the book explores coming to America stories told using only six words. First, Arnaldo Castillo is no stranger to Atlanta's food scene. From Empire State South to Little Trouble, his cooking skills have been honed all over town. Most recently, Castillo was executive chef at Ponce City Markets Monero, but he's since gone solo with his new Peruvian pop-up, La Chingana. Castillo's pop-ups range from four-course meals to takeaway, but they're always served with a heaping side of history and laced with stories of Lima and northern Peru, where he and his family are from. Arnaldo Castillo joins us now via Zoom. Arnaldo, welcome to City Lights.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Happy to have you here. So my understanding is you moved to the States when you were pretty young, right?
1: Yeah, I was um, six years old, around six years old, yeah. So I was born in Peru, in Lima, and at that time, in the early 90s, um, there was a lot of domestic terrorism happening in Lima, and the economic situation, the political situation was just really tough on our family, and my dad decided, well, my family decided to move to the States, and my dad was the first one that immigrated in the early 90s. And then we just followed suit.
2: Was it a fair amount of time between him leaving and and you arriving?
1: Yeah, I probably didn't see him for four years or so. He moved to New York and, you know, he he had a restaurant in Lima with my, one of my uncles and he, you know, was in New York crashing on his friend's couch and then got a job as, as a cook in a Peruvian restaurant. And he did that for about four years. And then it wasn't until like, I think 95 that I came with my mom.
2: Wow. I know that's very common for an immigration story, but it just speaks so highly of your dad to take on that burden and must have been hard on your family to be apart for that long.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely was. And you know, we decided that, uh, I say we, but my, my parents decided that it was best for the kids to go to Buda, where my mom is from. This is a state in northern Peru. And it was going to be the best situation for us to go up there and just live and be with family up there. So even though my dad was gone for the time being to help support us in Peru, I have only the best memories in Puta.
2: That's wonderful. So you mentioned that your father cooked and Mm -hmm. got a job in a Peruvian restaurant. Is it safe to assume that's where your love of cooking came from?
1: Yeah, that was sort of the way that I was born into it, so to speak. You know, he had a restaurant in Lima, but you know, I was a baby, so I don't, I wasn't really around it much. Um, But it was when I finally got to the States and was able to sort of observe how my dad was working and his love for Peruvian food. And I I just kind of fell into that, you know, my parents eventually had this home business, and they were basically making food for all the uh, Peruvians in Gwinnett, (laughs) I want to say. Oh, wow. So we, you know, we were known in like the little small Peruvian community as the family that would cater and provide Peruvian food for people. And so that was very That was an interesting experience for me because growing up, I never saw myself as wanting to be a chef or a cook. I just naturally fell into it, you know?
2: So when you did first start cooking, did you start with Peruvian dishes?
1: No. My first cooking job was actually at this restaurant in Midtown called Taqueria. Fusion restaurant of like Korean meets Mexican. And it's funny that that's how I started my cooking career. And then I ended it at a Mexican restaurant uh, in Ponce City Market, as the executive chef, still making tacos. (laughs) One of of my favorite (laughs) foods to not only make and and share with people, but to eat, you know?
2: (laughs) You rose to executive chef level there pretty quickly, right?
1: Yeah, I came in as a sous chef in January of 2017. And by the end of the year, I was chef de cuisine. And then once chef Sean Brock left the group, I became the executive chef of the restaurant.
2: Wow. And so what has made you decide to pivot and look forward to opening up your own place?
1: I just wanted to share, I want to share Peruvian food with Atlanta and do it in a way that's sustainable and and modern and fresh. I want to take the experiences that I got from working in all these fine dining establishments and casual establishments and just sort of come up with a model where the food is going to be approachable and sustainable, meaning that we're going to work with as many local purveyors and farmers to introduce Peruvian food in a way that also intersects with our region, you know, like, what does Peruvian food look like in the South? That's sort of like Mm. the question that I've been imposing on myself.
2: So what is Peruvian food in the South? What have you come up with?
1: One of the things that I've learned in doing these pop-ups is I've been able to learn a lot lot about the culture and the history of Peruvian food, just from all the research that I've been doing. I was born there and I was there until I was six, but I grew up with an American culture. And when I started doing these pop-ups, I've been able to really connect with my Peruvian heritage. And one of the awesome things about doing these pop-ups is that we always end our meals on a sweet note. And my girlfriend, Julie, is from Georgia. And... She's American. And when we talk about these desserts and we start that conversation of like, what does a Peruvian dessert look like when we start incorporating her background and her culture into it? And then, you know, we'll come up with, for example, one of our dishes that we did, Masamorra Arroz con Leche, which is a a very typical Peruvian dessert, which is rice pudding and this pudding made with purple corn. And we were like, how can we present it in a way that's going to be approachable for people you know so they can understand it and as we get that conversation going it was like well why don't we make the rice pudding into an ice cream and then we'll make the purple corn pudding into a sort of a cobbler situation and Mm -hmm. yeah now we're looking at the food that we're doing as like it's Peruvian but it's influenced by our where we are you know our location
2: Very cool. Well, I do want to share with people a little bit more about your very beginning of the pop-up. My understanding is that when you first started cooking outside of Monero, it was for a couple of different charitable purposes. Do you want to elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. So we closed the restaurant down for a few months while the pandemic was at its height last year. And talking to a buddy of mine, who's a chef, As well in the city, um, you know, we were trying to help out some of the marginalized communities, specifically the undocumented workers in the restaurant industry. And I knew that I was lucky that I knew that I had a stimulus check coming. And so when we started talking about how we can help them out, I decided to take that money that was going to come from the government and use it to purchase supplies and ingredients and make dishes that we would sell, and then we would take that money and help out these families that were struggling to pay their bills, pay their rent, et cetera.
2: Restaurant workers just like you, but not documented. So no stimulus checks.
1: Right. They weren't going to have any help from the government. Right. You know, unfortunately, like, I don't know, maybe the restaurants weren't going to be able to help them as well. You know, the places where they are employed and they found themselves in a really bad spot. Um, So, you know, I, I just felt i i remember when i first came to this country and i had a lot of help from the american families you know in the communities where we lived that helped us out you know whether it was like here's a couch or here's some clothes or here's some food you know so something that i grew up my parents i've always seen them always extend a hand to people in that same manner and i just wanted to do the same thing you know it's just about paying it forward i'm just lucky that i had that opportunity to do that and then the next time we did something was for uh, Cinco de Mayo. And my partner is a nurse in one of the local hospitals. And as the executive chef of a Mexican restaurant, I was like, what can we do to make this Cinco de Mayo be a little bit better for people? You know, because it honestly, it sucked for all the healthcare workers. And, you know, I reached out to my company and explained the plan, and they were on board. So I went in, I hadn't been in the restaurant in about a month and a half or something like that. So it was weird just walking back into the restaurant at Monero and, you know, turning on the gas and Hmm. flicking flicking the lights on and getting to work. And we were able to raise enough money to provide food for 60 nurses and doctors. And I thought that was, that was a very neat thing to do. And I'm just happy we were able to accomplish that.
2: No doubt. And I can only assume very well appreciated.
1: There's nothing better than guacamole on a, on a Cinco de Mayo, right?
2: <laughs> they, were, <enough. laughs>
1: they were all at work. I wish I could have gotten some margaritas, but they were working.
2: <laughs> you did your best, man. You did your best. I did. <laughs> can we talk a little bit about the name of your pop-up? What does it mean?
1: La Chingada was a name that I found in one of my rabbit hole searches on Peruvian food history. And I came up on this definition where it means a hole in the wall. So same way that we speak of like mm-hmm. fondas or, or in, in Peru, we call them huariques. You know, they're, they're just little establishments um, where you can go and get great food. Now, the La Chingana name is actually from the colonial times. And it was sort of like a speakeasy, you know, it was a notorious place for people to go and get, you know, alcohol or booze or wh- whatever they had available at that time. And it just stuck with me. I've always appreciated the past and I've always been drawn to it. So I, I thought, A, it just sounded cool. And and B, it, it helped define what we were, which is, you know, we don't have a face yet. You know, we're working towards having a brick and mortar. And for now, we are just, you know, just a hole in the wall.
2: Will you try to keep the name when you do have a brick and mortar? A little tribute to your roots?
1: I think so. Yeah.
2: That's great good so you talk a lot about highlighting history and culture within the food that you served how is that presented to people
1: um when we do these dinners i'll talk about each course that we're doing and what the inspiration was for each one and i'm pulling a lot from memories of going to visit my family i go once a year now i haven't been able to do that since 2019 when i last went we were you know we have I had bought tickets to go in 2020 and obviously the pandemic happened. And then mm-hmm. this year with trying to start this business, we I just decided to postpone it for, for another year. So it's going to be almost three years that I haven't seen my, Aww. my parents. And it, it sucks, but you know, it's, we're working towards something.
2: If you're just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and I'm speaking with Arnaldo Castillo, the seasoned Atlanta executive chef that has recently launched his own pop-up, La Chingana. If someone was unfamiliar with Peruvian cuisine, how do you describe the palate to a newcomer?
1: I would say it's fresh and vibrant and spicy from the ajis and the seasonings are all these, what you'd categorize as like warm spices, because we use a lot of cloves and cinnamon and cumin. And it's rich and hearty food that I like to say it's soul food, you know, Mm -hmm. especially when I go to Buda, it's the dishes that I always want to have when I'm there are going to be these slow cooked meats or these braises. And they just really show me what the food of that region is like, you know, like, my godparents have owned this restaurant sort of like a cafe in buda for the last i want to say 40 years haven't changed the menu it's turkey sandwiches and chifles which is plantain chips and there's other you know like tamal verde and all these other components and they haven't changed the menu at all in 40 years and it is it's still delicious every time i go i have i try to have the same thing and it just, it's just warming. It's just good food, you know? And that's how I like to present Peruvian food. There's so many iconic dishes from all over the country. And every time I do a dinner, I just try to pick the ones and sort of introduce them in a way that's approachable for them.
2: Well, you mentioned the meats. Can we talk about seafood and ceviche?
1: Yeah, of course. I, you know, when I decided to do the pop-up and and leave my job that I was at for the last four years, I was like, I'm leaving at a time that we're gonna get into the summer and what's a better way to have ceviche than on a hot day with a cold beer? And that's usually how I like to present it. I'll find whatever fish is freshest and I'll do a leche de tigre, which is a, a marinade that's composed of taking some stock, some lime juice, and then the fish scraps that you took from the fish that you're going to make a ceviche out of and then you blitz all that up in a blender and then that's sort of your marinade, you know. But ceviche is also a very regional dish in Peru. and Lima, it'll typically be something along the lines of a leche de Tigre, but in the north where my mom's from and where they say the best ceviche is from, <laughs> um, all they're going to do is just use the lime juice, you know. There's a city called Chulucanas, and they're known for being a lime-growing region, and they say that those are the best limes. So, all they need is just some fresh lime juice and some salt, and that's it. And, the, and a good fresh fish.
2: That's amazing. Um, what is the cooking chemistry behind ceviche? How how do you end up with cooked food from limes?
1: Yeah, we, we say cook because it'll, the lime will cure the fish, and it'll change the um, the bite of the actual flesh, so it'll be it won't be that raw sushi like taste, but Mm -hmm. it'll be a little bit more dense. And, you know, it all depends on how long you leave the fish in the marinade, you know, in Peru, you typically want to do, you know, three to five minutes, and it's sitting in a bowl, and then you you're it's ready to eat. One of the things I learned by being the executive chef of a Mexican restaurant was the ceviches in Mexico are it's a way longer cooking time. I mean, we're talking about hours where the fish will just sit and just cook in that marinade. And then you eat it with typically as a dip. You know, there's chips served alongside. That's one of the things I've learned is when I'm explaining what a Peruvian ceviche is, we don't use a, a chip. We'll use either a fork or preferably a spoon because you want to get not only a, some fish in your spoon, but some of that fried concha corn. You want to get some of that sweet potato. You want to get the red onions or you want to get some of that marinade. And that's typically how we'll eat it when I go home and I'm hanging out with the family. You know, we'll just serve a big platter of it. And everyone is trying to tip the platter so you can get some of that marinade. <laughs> Ceviche varies throughout Latin America. You know, in Mexico, they'll they'll cook the fish longer. In Peru, they'll do it shorter. But it just varies on regionally, you know.
2: I'm really glad you mentioned that. I've always been curious about the difference in regions of ceviche because it is one of my all-time favorite dishes. One of my all-time favorite cocktails is a pisco sour. Is having cocktails something you're looking forward to with the brick and mortar?
1: Yes, for sure. For sure. But as much as I love pisco, I love rum a lot too. And you know, there's a region where they grow a lot of sugarcane in Peru. And and I feel like rum is one of those spirits that's It gets overshadowed, obviously, by the pisco because that's the national spirit. But have you ever had a chilcano?
2: I don't think so.
1: So a chilcano is a cocktail made with pisco, ginger ale, ice, and just a splash of lime. And it's going to be like the freshest and quickest way to be able to enjoy pisco on a hot day, you know? While I love pisco sours, they're a little bit time-consuming. There's a lot more technique behind it. Whereas Mm -hmm. a chilcano is is, is just a couple of pours on a glass and you're good to go and that's what we did at one of my last dinners and I was able to just pull from this memory where my cousin came to my parents house once I had arrived from from Atlanta and you know he he had a can of peaches and then a bottle of pisco and some ginger ale and he just pour everything in a glass and that was it you know it was quick and easy and you're able to appreciate the the pisco.
2: Oh yeah, that sounds super refreshing. Yeah. Pisco
1: itself is great, you know, as a, as a building block for creating different cocktails and adding different fruit, pulled juices to it and just kind of creating your own. And so at this last pop-up, you know, we used some, some local peaches and I feel like that was another instance where we were able to integrate something that's regional and from the area and blending it with proven ingredients to have something that is, you know, Peruvian and Georgia
2: sounds so good so when's your next pop-up
1: yeah right now we will announce on our instagram page at chingana.atl and that's where we'll announce our august dates and then something else that we're working on is is doing meal kits sort of to go where the people that aren't able to make our core style dinners they'll be able to you know, shoot me a message and purchase one of these meal kits, where we'll have three to four courses, depending on what's available, and and people can purchase that and enjoy it in the comfort of their own home.
2: You know, we really should elaborate on what the pop up experience is like, because pop up is such a commonly used term now that can mean so many different things to so many different mm-hmm. establishments. What type of experience am I going to have if I'm able to make it to a pop up of yours?
1: There's two kinds of pop-ups there's a sit-down pop-up dinner and then there's the a la carte experience and I've done both I try to do both at least once a month so you can get the experience of coming in in the a la carte experience and you'll just sort of take a look at the menu and you get what you like you know and so it's not as time consuming for you. um, Because when we do the dinners, you know, it's a two hour experience where you'll be able to come in sit down and try to have some beverage pairings. And I get to talk and be more connected with the uh, audience, you know, and talk a little bit more about the dishes and inspiration and where the ingredients are from. And then a lot of um, information that I'm like putting out there and hopefully not, not too much, you know, I don't want (laughs) to overwhelm people, but it but just you gives got a lot me a little, to say. there's a lot to say, of course. <laughs> and, you know, you want to, you want to make it approachable. You know, I always revert back to this dish called causa, which is a mashed potato dish that we do. And it has a very rich historical context to the dish. And I remember the first time I introduced it to my girlfriend, Julie, and she took her first bite and she was like, oh, it's like a potato salad. And I was like, well, no, there's a lot more to it than that. But It really is just a potato salad, you know, it's just, (laughs) you know, and (laughs) there, there's a lot of flavors and components to it. You know, it's a layered potato salad, so to speak. And that's the way that when I put it on the menu now, I'll always say like, it's your Peruvian grandma's potato salad. And that's sort of the goal here that something that I've been learning while I've been doing these pop-ups is sometimes it's it's just easier to just kind of tone it down a little bit and just make it approachable for people to understand what Peruvian food is in regards to a specific dish, you know?
2: What type of establishments are you hosting the pop-ups in?
1: I've been lucky that, you know, I've been in this, in the industry here in Atlanta for over 10 years. So I've had a lot of, um, a lot of peers reach out and and offer their establishments. So it could be whether at a small breakfast joint, or it could be at a brewery, or it could be at a full sit-down restaurant, you know. Wherever people are able to make a little room for us to just sort of pop in and host these dinners or these a la carte pop-ups is where you'll find us.
2: How many people can you serve on one evening? Typically we do 20 to 25
1: people and it'll be myself, my girlfriend, Julie, because she's sort of the, she's not sort of, she is the pastry chef for La Chingana, (laughs) Uh, Even though she's a full time nurse. Right. (laughs) Even though she's a full time nurse, I've sort of been like, hey, what do you think about this? And then still she's just great at it. I mean, she's just been knocking home runs every time. And, you know, I'll I'll reach out to other peers and we'll staff up and we'll be able to, you know, take care of twenty to twenty-five people at a time and have a smooth service, so to speak.
2: That's wonderful. So Arnaldo, how has your life changed since you left Monero and are now pursuing this?
1: It's been a constant hustle because it's different going from you know managing a million dollar restaurant to you know to staffing to doing schedules and orderings and all the other logistical components of running a restaurant of that caliber versus doing this pop up. But that was sort of my training ground. You know, I, I got to learn so much about not only managing but about leadership and fine-tuning my work ethic so now that when I do my pop-ups I try to approach it the same way you know like how can we get better and what do I need to change and tweak here and there but to be honest man it's been very fulfilling like I'm happier I have time for my significant other I have time for my dogs I have time to breathe a little bit more and it definitely took some time to adjust you know like being on a set schedule to just sort of having all this, I I don't want to say free time, but just having all this time to now like develop this idea and then, you know, work towards the goal of being a brick and mortar. But there's no rush, you know, right now it's about fine tuning this idea and, and fine tuning the dishes that we get to share with the folks here in Atlanta and, you know, just finding out what people are enjoying about it. I think that's that's the fulfilling part
2: right now. Arnaldo Castillo, executive chef and owner of the Peruvian pop-up La Chingana. Their August pop-up schedule will be released soon, and you can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Up next, our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring Rocio Rodriguez. You're listening to WABE Atlanta.
3: This is City Lights
2: on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thanks for joining us. It's now time for our series, Speaking of the Arts, where we get to hear from Atlanta artists in their own words.
4: I am Rocio Rodriguez and I am a painter. My work has undergone a variety of transformations since I started painting over 40 years ago. At first, I was a figurative painter. I painted large portraits and very large landscapes. Through the years, as the work matured, I developed an abstract vocabulary. It included loose, gestural passages of paint and fragments of images. But most recently, after a trip out west to New Mexico in 2019, I switched gears and did an entire body of work based on what I call skyscapes. Do I consider myself primarily an abstract painter? I always drew as a child and was very interested in art, and I would spend hours looking at art books. When I went off to college, I was actually a political science major. I had a roommate that was an art major, and that reignited my interest in art. And I started going to evening drawing sessions with her. After a couple of years and a lot of soul searching, I decided to change my major to art, which is what I always really wanted to do. I find that inspiration is not something I sit around and wait for or that I can count on. What is important to me is engagement. That means something that engages my mind and that causes me to ponder and think about and figure out. Sometimes that comes with reading a book or watching a film or even a conversation that I have with a friend that can cause me to investigate a particular creative problem. Inspiration can also come when I travel and change my routine, and that offers an opportunity to see things in a different way and express them in my work. I think routine is a creativity killer, and part of being creative is putting yourself in situations that are not necessarily familiar. What Atlanta has that other major art centers like New York City or LA don't have is affordable living. I can work here with few distractions, not feeling like I am in the center of the art world and afford to paint full-time without having two jobs to support myself as an artist. I also like the fact that Atlanta is a big city, but that I can live in an in-town neighborhood that has a small-town feel to it. I go to the High Museum and MOCA GA, which is the Museum of Contemporary Art of Georgia, which exhibits some of the best work being done in Georgia today, and I visit Atlanta art galleries. I am represented by the Sandler Hudson Gallery here in Atlanta, where I have exhibited my work for a number of years. I recently had a retrospective in Mocha GA in twenty nineteen, and I am in their collection, and my work is included in a present exhibition at the High Museum right now titled Art Pioneers, Influencers and Rising Voices: Women in the Collection. Right now, I am making a series of very small paintings that are only 11 by 14 inches. For years, I made paintings in varying sizes, particularly large paintings and wall drawings. But as of late, I'm really interested in a more intimate and personal space to express myself in, and I'm exploring that scale and see what that can offer.
2: That was Cuba-born artist and 35-year Atlanta resident, Rocio Rodriguez. Our series, Speaking of the Arts, features Atlanta artists telling their own stories. Coming up, we'll hear about a collection of coming-to-America stories that are each told in only six words. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. All right, here's a simple question for you. What's your story? Now, a twist. Can you tell that story in only six words? That's the beautifully modest idea behind six-word memoirs. Founded in 2006, the project has since launched a series of best-selling books, a website, live performances, and even a board game. A few years back, the Six-Word Memoir Project asked a more specific question, what's your coming to America story in only six words? What resulted was Fresh Off the Boat, a timely and unique crowdsourced book of immigration stories. City Lights host Lois Reitzes sat down with the Six Word Memoir founder Larry Smith and Atlanta-based editor Shauna Green back when the book was released in 2018. Smith started their conversation by explaining how the project started.
5: Well, the story of the Six Word Memoir Project really starts either 114 years when my, grandmother, my grandfather came over from Russia as an immigrant, like so many Americans have done, or about 12 years ago. 12 years ago, I had a storytelling community where people could share stories about any parts of their lives. Life-changing moments, crazy breakups, brushes with fame, and people liked it. It was called Smith Mag after my grandfather, Morris Smith, who everyone called Smitty. And I can tell you more about him later if you like. He's really my storytelling hero. Mm-hmm. And people liked it, but you know, it wasn't a big deal. It was another web project. This is 2006. And then, on a whim, I posed one more challenge to this community. I said, a lot of you are familiar with the story that Ernest Hemingway was once challenged in a barbed to write a whole novel in just six words. You know, Hemingway wrote a simple and, you know, it's been called muscular writing. Every word counted. So I said to the community, online and wherever online takes you, <laughs> what if we gave the Hemingway legend, and it is a legend, we don't. it's not provable, but... We've agreed it's a literary legend in the world. Uh, what if we gave the six-word novel a personal twist? I called it the six-word memoir, and I thought it might be another little riff on this uh, on this web magazine, and, and see what happened.
6: And what happened?
5: Well, the next day I went home for Thanksgiving. In two thousand and six, on Thanksgiving, I I've been doing Smith Mag for about a year, and my family was like. Ugh. Like, I mean, we know it, you, we like it, but you can't, this is no business. And I had left a very good magazine career at ESPN Magazine and Men's Journal and some places that have gone out of business to do this. And they're kind of worried, like, hey, you know, like, is he going to move back in soon? <laughs> and so, um, but I told them about this new idea that I thought had legs. And I said, you know, it's the six-word story of your life. And immediately around the dinner table and for 12 years around dinner tables across the world, the same thing has happened in other places. My 10-year-old nephew said, oh, I have a six-word memoir for grandpa. Memory loss? What was I thinking? And his little brother, who was seven, wrote, can't wear tie-dye every day, want to. might actually be seven words, but we give him a pass. He's seven. (laughs) My four-year-old niece did a six-word review of the turkey. And I was like, wow. Now, what's fun about Thanksgiving 2006, at least in my life, and maybe many of your listeners, you actually didn't check email that day. <laughs> you know, what a simpler time. And perhaps we'll get back to that time. The next day, I checked my email. I had 4,000 emails. Because wow. back then, you just it came to me, right? And I was like, wow, what's happening here? And in a month, we had twelve thousand, and now, twelve years later, there's been one point three million six-word memoirs on the site. Countless more in classrooms, boardrooms, festivals. I, you know, Sean and I love working in real space. So, what was a little another riff? Uh, I, I wear many six-word memoir T-shirts. One of my favorites is "Through spaghetti at wall, some stuck." The six-word was the storytelling spaghetti I dreamed of, and here's why. My approach to storytelling, even as an editor at these magazines, was that I wanted storytelling to be open and populist. Storytelling shouldn't just be Wait, for pe-
6: populist in the good sense.
5: The good populist, exactly. <laughs> yes. The good populist. Populist and the, a democratic and open to anyone. Yes. You don't need to have written a best-selling book or f- written for the New Yorker or, or the Guardian or the Times to be considered a storyteller. And we created what I like to think was a level playing field. Anyone can share a story first in many words and then in six. And that, 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 the constraint of six words did not get in the way of creativity. The constraint fueled creativity.
6: Yeah, and this is interesting to me because uh, tweets seem like war and peace compared <laughs> to this. How do people find such creativity in the constraint? I mean, we know that I mean, it was Gertrude Stein who told Hemingway, to pare down, right. just get rid of all that fluff and all those cues, and what emerged was that magnificent, simple storytelling and simple, exquisite sentences, but for a lot of people, six words wouldn't be enough.
5: I mean, it, it isn't for many people, but what's great about the six-word format is that we, it forces us all to get to get to the essence of who we are and what matters most. Now, uh, your six-word memoir could be something very much in the moment, like I was in a school uh, last year, and a, a nine-year-old, ten-year-old kid said, "My six, Mr. Smith, my six-word memoir is, I seriously love school bean burritos. Boom. It's a little slice of his life. Um, on the other hand, it could be... A big, a big story of your life. Gloria Steinem's six-word memoir is Life is One Big Editorial Meeting. And, you know, on the site or around dinner tables and events, you can write one six-word memoir and share it, and that can be it. But but many people on the website, and especially teens because, you know, their lives are changing every second, the hormones and life changes, uh, especially teens on the other end, some of the older contributors to six-word memoirs, uh, who have stories to tell they have li- lessons to give they do thousands of six word memoirs uh, about their life on the website and it just it's just a pleasure to see them come in
6: well you've had six word memoirs on love and heartbreak on war on jewish life and by teens tell us how you got to your new
5: book which is six words off the boat uh, so fresh off the six boat. words fresh off the boat so you know, so much of, of who we are, uh, our our identity, really is about where, we, where we're from. And almost everyone in the United States of America came from somewhere else. Now, some people came over on, and they didn't want to come over involuntarily, ancestors who came over on slave ships, and Native Americans were here already. Yeah. And in our new book, we have both of those perspectives. But most people came from somewhere else. And what's interesting is, we often don't even know. Look, like with my own grandfather, I, as a young journalist, I realized one day, I knew very little about his coming to America story, what the kids call an epic fail. So as I we we finished our eighth book, which was The Best Advice in Six Words, and my publisher said, you know, what's next? So I really want to do a book on immigration. Now, I have to offer context. This was before the election of Trump, but immigration is a timeless question and story and topic. And so I thought, let's ask people, where do they come from? And some people will be very recent immigrants and refugees and other people will share a story about great-great-grandparents, such as note pin to coat, Pittsburgh, PA. Mm-hmm. And that person is talking about maybe their great-grandfather or grandmother's story of how they got here. Or it could be something, uh, a fun one, which is like so many types of milk products. That's someone's American story, right? Or ordering coffee at Starbucks is complicated, because it is. And Uh, we teamed up with the TV show Fresh Off the Boat, which also uses pop culture as a lens in to uh, stories of America and coming to America. And that became the new book, Six Words Fresh Off the Boat, Stories of Immigration, Identity, and Coming to America. And because my colleague here, Shauna, lives in Atlanta, and Atlanta is such a wonderful and welcoming place for recent arrivals to this country, there's a lot of Atlanta in this book.
6: Yes, Shauna. The city of Clarkston is well represented in this book about immigrant life and uh, Clarkston has been called the Ellis Island of the South. Tell us about how Clarkston is represented here and, and some of the other local storytellers who will be featured.
3: Yes, we we actually have storytellers from throughout Atlanta, whether it's East Atlanta, Inman Park, Sandy Springs, Decatur, uh, but Clarkston is prominently featured because it really is a safe place for people to come here and establish their lives as new Americans. And what's really beautiful about that community is you have Georgians who've been there for generations who have opened their homes and minds to these new Uh, Immigrants and refugees, and what those new arrivals are looking for is just a welcome, so they can get their start here. And when I first was working on this book, I'll be honest, I had seen the highway exit for Clarkston, but I really didn't know where it was. And I knew there was a an extensive refugee and immigrant community there, but I hadn't experienced it. So when I went out there, what I really discovered was whether it's through Refuge Coffee and the business uh, opportunities that they offer, or the Clarkston Community Health Center, uh, which offers uh, free medical care for people who would need access to care, because that really is something that goes away after uh, a refugee's been resettled here for about six months. And the local businesses, food, etc., cetera, it's, it's really a vibrant community.
6: Yeah, I I was hoping, in addition to Refuge Coffee, that you could talk about Dr. Gulshan Harji. Uh,
3: She is a phenomenal woman, and for anyone who doesn't know her yet, you definitely need to find out more about her. She uh, has escaped multiple regimes in different countries, and when she came here, she came here with a drive and a passion. Uh, WENT TO MEDICAL SCHOOL. I BELIEVE SHE WENT TO MOREHOUSE AND THEN uh, TRANSFERRED TO Emory. BUT WHAT SHE'S DONE IN THE YEARS SINCE IS ESTABLISHED SCHOLARSHIPS SO THAT OTHER PEOPLE WILL HAVE THOSE OPPORTUNITIES. SHE CO-FOUNDED THIS CLINIC TO MAKE SURE THAT PEOPLE ARE HUMANIZED AND BECAUSE BASIC HEALTH IS SO IMPORTANT TO BEING SUCCESSFUL. AND EVERYONE THAT THEY TREAT THERE WANTS TO BE A SUCCESSFUL uh, CONTRIBUTING MEMBER OF THE COMMUNITY. And her clinic is run by volunteers. It's, it's uh, astounding.
6: It's extraordinary. And it's so
5: uplifting.
3: It really. It, she is one of the most positive, uplifting uh, persons you'll ever meet.
5: Lois, you, you said in the beginning, God, don't you, you really want to hear more than six words? Isn't it hard just to get it down to six words? And the thing about a good six-word memoir, or really any story, is three more magic words that the listener may say to you. Tell me more. And so when we came out with books, when we went on book tour, we thought, well, if we just have people who are in Atlanta or San Francisco, or wherever we might be touring, share their six words, that's going to be a very quick evening. So we thought, oh, let's open up the words. Let's tell the backstories. And when you flip through the book, you can't but wonder, tell me more. My uh, son, who now is seven, he was flipping through the book when the first copy came in. He was so proud. He got a fake uh, temporary Statue of Liberty tattoo which matches the (laughs) cover. And he said, you know, Daddy, I don't think this one is good grammar. He said, "Um, why you no get straight A's? And that was in quotes. And I said, well, I don't know the backstory. I I wish I knew all 550 storytellers in the book, but I don't. But it seems to me, I'm going to guess, that maybe uh, that family came over from another country. The parents are probably very smart, but probably the the, the daughter's grammar is better than the parents because she's learning English here from the ground up, or pretty early on, and so those six words in my mind are we we it was hard to get to America. And you better do well in school. don't blow it. <laughs> but I'm just guessing, but the idea that you can share these stories and wonder what the backstory is.: This is City Lights on WABE at
6: Lattice Choice for NPR. I'm Lois Wrights. this here with Larry Smith and Shauna Green talking about six words fresh off the boat. The immigrant stories at the heart of this book offer a wide range of experience, some uplifting, others heartbreaking. In the latter category, uh, one that stood out for me in particular was, we've always been here, Blackfeet Nation. What does this story say about the perception of immigrants?
5: Well, it was really important when we put this book together to really be mindful of the fact that not everyone, in fact, in America came from somewhere else. Yeah. Some people, like Native Americans, were here. <laughs> and so um, that's, com- that's a complex idea. And uh, we felt that, you know, at, we had to, you know, give representation voice to some of those stories. Uh, grandfather clawed his way on slave ship. You know, just that imagery, that word "clawed." He's just hanging on with both hands to get to a place he doesn't want to go. So that was important. There's no one immigrant experience. You know, there's there's as many immigrant experiences there as you can imagine. But I
6: think what was so striking, really stunning for me with seeing that Blackfeet Nation was the reminder that everyone is an immigrant in the United States, Except for the original. Exactly. Indeed, we had the brutality, the tragedy of forced immigrants with enslaved people. But um, the whole notion of dismissing others because they're new to the United States, you know, just flies in the face of what what really makes this country. The layout of the stories is remarkable. For example, um, traded Russian shtetl for Bronx tenement is on the page next to oppression became opportunity, poverty became prosperity. So the contrast between hardship prolonged and uh, hopes fulfilled is striking. What goes into the design?
5: Well, you know, the uh, it is kind of a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, and we try to create, it's like this secret the secret order that only Sean and I really know, we try to kind of anticipate that you can't go too high, too high, too long, and then too low, too low in terms of intensity. So we try to have the flow, and we try to, we mix in six-word memoirs by students and six-word memoirs by celebrities. You know, you were talking about the idea that how could we, if we, while the book was not meant to be a political book, it was conceived long before Trump and came out after Trump was elected. Uh, it's not meant as a political book. But yet, can stories change hearts and minds? We know stories can change hearts and minds. And the very first memoir on page one, we have a few celebrities mixed in, but it's largely just anybody can share a story, is by Secretary Madeleine Albright, who shares, in 1948, I was a refugee. And we put that the number one spot, I mean, not number one spot, but first story, because, yes, she's very famous and wonderful. But to send the message to the readers, she what if she was immigrating today she probably wouldn't be let in
6: much less become secretary exactly of
5: State. so and and raise your hand if you don't want madeline albright in america right <laughs> and by the same token that idea of um possibility in the face of, of, of uh intensity and hard times there's six words by jose hernandez for migrant farm worker to nasa astronaut if you're uh, a kid, or, a, or whose dad or mom is a farm worker, or maybe you are yourself, and you're feeling hopeless. Look, read these six words, and say, "Jose did it, and so can you." It's a model for what's possible, and we all need models to be like to know they can strive to a certain place. It is not hopeless, no matter the worst days you have, because immigrants they get the job done.
6: Yes, and um, in just the minute we have left, I was hoping you could tell us your six word memoir, Larry.
5: Well, uh, I'll, share, I'll share the first six-word memoir I, I ever wrote, which is, uh, imagine this, listeners, think big when I say the word hair. Big hair, big heart, big hurry.
6: <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. In the foreword, you note that the sum of our stories is who we are and how we define ourselves as a nation. Shauna Green. Larry Smith, thank you very much for this continuing project and for joining us on City Lights.
5: It's a real pleasure, Lois.
4: Yeah,
3: thank you for bringing this to Atlanta.
2: Six-Word Memoir founder Larry Smith and Atlanta-based editor Shauna Green speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. You can learn more about Fresh Off The Boat, a collection of six-word coming to America stories on our website, wabe.org/citylights. Finally today, an update for you. In an effort to keep up with COVID precautions, DragonCon, Atlanta's annual international pop culture convention, announced on Monday that they will be altering their health and safety protocols. Dragon Con's Dan Carroll joined Closer Look's Rose Scott to share the details. Here, Carroll expresses his disappointment while explaining this year's parade protocol.
0: Just like what happened with Dragon Con last year, sometimes glitches occur, but we got to keep plugging along. The parade will not be open to spectators who are not Dragon Con attending. This is obviously news that we, we don't want to be sharing, but It was, uh, without a doubt, the best decision. Dragon Con participants will be allowed along the parade route, but we're asking everyone to stay home and enjoy the parade, both on YouTube with Dragon Con TV, uh, but also here in Atlanta on CW69.
2: Carol went on to explain that the decision was following the same protocols that the Peachtree Road Race used in July. We are following the
0: same protocols that were held for the Peachtree Road Race. The Peachtree Road Race was held again this year, a um, very successful race, but the spectators were asked to stay home. Working with the city, working with our partners, this is going to be the best route mm-hmm. for everybody. We do understand that the parade is something that we're going to need to limit the crowds that. And this was the best solution that we could find. Uh, we're looking for people wearing cloth masks, those masks that have been approved and recommended by the CDC and other health authority. We're not going to give exceptions just because somebody looks really awesome without one. Some got costumes, I myself have a Star Wars costume that comes with a cloth mask already. <laughs> I'm safe, but we ask everybody to wear the masks.
2: Further details can be found on DragonCon's website, dragoncon.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta designer Elisa Bertrand tells us about her upcycled clothing line, Jabella Fleur. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org citylights There, you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzis. Our producer is Summer Evans. And Shelley Knavey is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and I encourage you to follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.